came to pass on the morrow that the rulers and elders and scribes, and Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's no name like that name, is there? You know, a name identifies a person. If it wasn't for the person, the name wouldn't mean anything. But if it wasn't for the name, you couldn't get in touch with the person. Whenever you want to talk to someone, what's the first thing you do? You call their name. You call them on the phone and you say their name or you walk up to them and you say their name. A name is an element of approach. Without the name, there's no access. Isn't it wonderful that He's got a name that we know? He's got a name that we don't know, the book of Revelation says. A name which no man knows. One day we'll learn that name. But right now He's got a name which we know. I'm thankful we can call on that name. I'm thankful He hears and I'm thankful He answers. And there's none other name like the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I just couldn't get that off me until I give it to someone else. Amen. Turn with me to Matthew chapter number 11 this morning. Matthew chapter number 11. I want to read just three verses to you this morning. And then I want to preach what the Lord's laid on my heart. I want to try to be a help to you this morning. I want to try to encourage you. We live in a day of discouragement. You know that? We live in a day when discouragement approaches easily and rapidly. But I'm thankful we can have encouragement in the Word of God this morning. I'm thankful that the Lord knows just what I need. I'm thankful the Lord knows just what you need this morning. If you've come here, you've come here by divine appointment. And I I encourage you and I urge you and I implore you to listen up carefully to what the Word of God says because He's got what you need this morning. Matthew chapter number 11, verse 28 says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's read verse 28 again. It'll be our text. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, I'm helpless without you, helpless without your spirit, helpless without your word, and helpless without your presence. Father, I I implore, Lord, that you would bless us with those three things this morning, that your word might be preached as would be pleasing to you, that the Holy Spirit would have liberty, Father, and that your presence would be manifest. You know each heart's need, Lord. We just ask You to meet it. Father, if there's one amongst us that's lost and undone this morning, I pray You would show them that. Father, convict them of their lost state. Show them Calvary, Lord. I pray that Your Son would be evidently set forth crucified before them. Father, that they would see the dying Savior on the cross. 
But Lord, that they'd see an empty tomb. They'd see a risen Savior able to save and able to keep. Father, we love you this morning. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You'll find as you study through the life of Christ that he made several statements uh, that were uh, connected together by a little phrase that we read. You may have not noticed it. In fact, it's easy to slip past you. But you'll find that when the Lord said something, it meant something. Amen? You'll find when the Word of God says something, it means something. Nothing's incidental, nothing's accidental. But all of it means something to our lives. And I want to read verse 28 to you again. I want to point this little phrase out. The Lord says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And I want you to underscore these two words. I will. I will. Would you underscore that in your Bible? I will give you rest. You'll find all through the Gospels that there were several significant times that the Lord used the phrase, I will. There were many times that He used it, but several times they were particularly significant. And they denoted things for you and I that the Lord has promised that He would do. And I want to take a few moments this morning and I want to talk about the I will of invitation. As we read this passage and we uh, gain uh, some notice and some attention towards this little phrase, I will, I want to say that it denotes two things before we even get into the message. Let me say that the Lord is revealing His will when He says this, isn't He? If you say, I will do this or I will do that, what we're really saying is uh, that my will is to accomplish this. And that denotes a few things. I'd say first off that we, we see the Savior's desire denoted in these two words. I will. When you will to do something, you want to do something. Is that not true this morning? Uh, in fact, we have a little uh, phrase that we use sometimes where there's a will, there's a way. What we mean by that is if you want something bad enough, you will make a way to accomplish it. Well, when the Savior says, I will do something, He's saying this subject or this action or this thought is in harmony with my will. It's my desire to accomplish this. And you know, there is the significance in all of these various I wills through the Word of God is that they reveal to us the desire of the Savior. You know, it's not always easy to know God's will. I mean, maybe it's easy for you, friend, but it's not always easy for me. There's times that I struggle knowing the will of God. There's times that I truly and earnestly seek it. But for whatever reason, God has not seen fit to reveal certain elements of His will in my life at that time. And then I'm ashamed to say it, but there's times in my life uh, when I'm not seeking the will of God like I ought to. Brother Bill, there's may have been some times like that for you and for my dad, Brother Tom, various people in this room. may have been some times in your life when God was trying to show you His will, but you were wrong. Running from His will. But we see in this passage that it reveals to us the will of the Savior in a small capacity. Let me say that not only does it reveal the will of the Savior, but do you know we have an omnipotent Savior? He can do as He pleases. Uh, in fact, the Bible says that He doeth whatsoever He will. There's nothing that hinders the Lord if He truly wants to do something. Now, there are some places where God has allowed Himself to be limited uh, in my life and in your life and has allowed us to limit Him. The Bible says in the book of Psalms about the nation of Israel that they had limited the Holy One of Israel. He allowed that to happen. But sovereignty is not that God will do anything. It's that God will do anything that He so desires 
to do. That's what sovereignty is. We have a sovereign God. That means something today when I read this passage. And I read this little phrase, I will. It denotes to me the desire of the Savior. But it denotes to me the decision of the Savior. You know, there's some things we might want to do, but there's things in life that hinders me and you. I've given the illustration before. I was talking to someone one day about the the difference between uh, uh, making a decision and being adamant. I was trying to explain the sovereignty of God. And, you know, you and I, uh, we we could say, how many of us, in fact, I heard my mother say it the other day, so I know I'll have one person raise their hand. How many of you would say, preacher, boy, I'd just love to go take a vacation over to the beach. Somebody somebody raise your hand. If that's you, you, but, but that's just about everyone, isn't it? How many of you would want to go to uh, to Florida to go to the beach? Slip your hand up if you had your, if you had your druthers. How many of you are too poor and have to go to Myrtle Beach? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> My people, amen. Well, why don't you go to the beach? I mean, I'm speaking hypothetically here, but why don't you go to the beach? I wonder how many of you, if I was to drive to the beach, I'd find you there tomorrow. Probably very, very few. And you say, well, what are you driving at, preacher? I'm saying you have a desire to do something, but there's some things that hinder you. And I was talking to a, it was actually a theology class, and I asked them the same question. They said, yeah, I want to go. I said, well, go. They said, well, I can't. Well, what do you mean you can't? I said, do you have a car? They said, yeah, we got cars. I said, do you have gas in the car? They said, yeah, I got gas in the car. I said, are you banned from the state of South Carolina? I said, no, I'm not banned from the state. I said, then why don't you go? They said, well, I've got to go to work tomorrow. I said, no, you don't. You don't have to go to work tomorrow. You make the decision to go to work tomorrow. You see, for you and I, because we're limited... And because we are not omnipotent, there's times when our desire and our decisions cannot coincide. We have a desire to do something, but we don't have the wherewithal to accomplish it. We have a desire to do something, but something hinders us from doing it. But can I say to you this morning, friend, that anything that God wants to do, He will do. He can do it. His desire and His decision, we see, coincide in this passage. We've read it many times. I know you have in your life, and I, I know I have in mine. This verse, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But I want us to just look at three thoughts this morning. I'm going to do my best to be brief. I want to say that as we read this passage, we see first off a plea that is offered by the Savior. He says, Come unto me. That's something He's asking you and I to do. Now, there's many things that the Lord asks us to do in our life. Some things we may not see the benefit of. But in this passage, I believe we see the benefit of it because we see the object of our coming to Him, and that's that we may obtain rest. Can I say something to you this morning? And I hope you'll consider it deeply. Do you know that the true longing of the human heart is that of rest? We really don't know true and total and complete rest. I've thought often, and maybe this might be a little abstract, I hope that it's not, but I've thought often about how acclimated we have become to this sin-cursed world. Most of you got up this morning, and uh, whenever you moved, you started making noises. (laughs) You started creaking and cracking and popping and snapping, and started making noises. And while you may feel that pain, uh, many times after you've done that for so long, you don't give it as much thought. Now, there's other debilitating uh, conditions where I'm sure that you're very aware of it. But can I even go a step farther? Can I even say that even a little newborn baby whose sin's curse has not been upon for very long, even they have limitations. They get weary. They get tired. Some of you new parents say they get cranky. Amen? (laughs) That's a lack of rest. 
You see, we're limited. Can I give you not only physical rest, but emotional rest? Let me ask you how long it's been since you've had sorrow. Most of you would admit it's not very long. Most of you have emotional pain in your life of some type, one way or the other. Most of you have a child or a grandchild or a spouse or a brother or a sister or a niece or a nephew or an aunt or an uncle that gives you emotional pain. Can I say your heart aches for them? We've never known a moment when we didn't have some degree of worry and some degree of anxiety. I don't care who you are. There's every one of us, there's something fearful about the unknown. We were talking about it in Sunday school this morning. The reason the Christian doesn't fear death, Brother Ralph, is because we don't have to fear the unknown. We know what takes place. The Bible teaches and reveals explicitly for those that have died in Christ what death holds. And so we do not fear it. But the Bible says that no man knows what tomorrow may bring. There is a constant anxiety and a constant fear. You may leave this building today, you may go out, you may get in your car, you may go down the road, cross a double line, or someone cross it towards you, and you go out of this world into eternity. You do not know. It's multiplied, I'm sure, when you have children. They get on the road, amen, that scares all of us. (laughs) They get on the road and they begin to drive. I remember the first time that I ever drove. Now, there's a lot of things that you don't remember in life, a lot of first times. But I, as a 16-year-old boy, I remember. I, I, I went, and, and some, of you, some of you young people, I, I'm going to step on your toes, but, but I was the type of person, I got my license the day that I turned 16. I mean, I was that excited. And I got, I didn't wait till I was 17, 18, 19, 20. My wife waited till she was a little bit older. I guess I had more trouble I wanted to get into. I don't know, but, but I got it like the day that I turned 16. And uh, mom and dad had bought me this old uh, beater cop car. That's what it was. It was a 95 Crown Victoria police interceptor cop car. The back windows didn't work. Amen. I ain't never been in the back of a police car other than that. But some of you know what I'm talking about. And I won't name names. Amen. But uh, it was an old cop car. And it was just, I mean, it was ugly, you know, but it was comfortable. It was like driving a couch around. And I remember climbing in the car the first time after I had that license in my hand. And I remember the look on my mother's face as I shifted it in reverse and backed out. I remember her saying to me, now don't go far, don't go far. Just go up the road and come back. And I'm conscious now, uh, it's really not got to do with parenthood. My my little fella, he ain't doing nothing but kicking my wife, amen? So I, I, I don't think it's got to do with that. It's just getting a little bit older. I recognize the fear and the anxiety. From that day forward, she began a new chapter of worry in her life. So did my father. And every day is filled with anxiety and fear and worry. I hope this blesses you. What's it going to be like when there's one eternal, never-changing day? What's it going to be like to live in a land where you know that nothing can go wrong? What will it be like to live in a place where you know sickness has no power and death has no grip? What will it be like to be in a place where sin cannot crush our very uh, morality? What's it going to be like? You see, we really don't know rest. There's spiritual unrest for many of us. I could go on and on and on. But can I say that the deepest longing of the human heart is that of rest? Even the believer does not know rest. 
completely, because if they did, there'd be no need for the coming of our Lord to bring us rest. We live in a state of unrest. But I'm thankful that the Word of God tells me that there's a place I can go to get rest. You may be weary today. You probably wouldn't be the only person in this room. You may be spiritually weary today. Elijah was. Elijah sat under a juniper tree and said, I'm not better than my father's. He was a spiritually depleted and discouraged man as he sat under that juniper tree. And if you're like me, you've had a few of them planted in your backyard yourself. Some places of discouragement where you just feel as though there's no light at the end of the tunnel and you feel as though there's no way to come out of this valley. If you're spiritually discouraged today, can I promise you that there's a place where you can find rest? Maybe you're emotionally discouraged. I've not dealt with depression in my life, but I know people that have. It's a very real thing. Very real thing. And the worst thing you can do is just tell them to buck up and put a smile on. Because if you're saying that, you don't know what it's like. Maybe you're dealing with depression and emotion. Maybe you're dealing with bitterness and anger. Can I tell you that there's a place, and there's a yoke that you can put on that will give you rest this morning. The Savior said to these that were gathered, Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy. It was a plea. I want to give you two things. I want to say, first off, it was a plea to approach. If you tell someone to come somewhere or to go somewhere, you're calling them to approach unto something. But can I tell you that that implies something to me? Ralph, I cannot go to you without leaving where I'm at. I have to recognize that where I am is not where I need to be. And I have to be willing to go to you. Do you realize that many times the things in our life that give us unrest are due to situations that sometimes we could help? Now you say, preacher, that's insensitive. No, that's the truth. I mean, I'm not preaching about you this morning. I'm preaching about Toby Weber. And I'm saying there's been times in my life when I've made a mess of things. And I had to recognize that where I was at was not where I needed to be. And I had to be willing to go to the Savior. I had to be willing to approach unto Him. I had to be willing to leave my circumstances to go to where He's at. Do you know what we call that? We use the terminology repent. That's the Bible word. In fact, the word repent denotes the idea of going one direction and then stopping and turning around and heading another direction. You see, what we believe repentance is today is we believe that's when the the, the drunkard busts up his liquor bottle. We think that's when uh, the drug addict throws away their drugs. Or we think that's when the person that's being uh, morally adulterous uh, puts away that affair and gets their marriage or their life settled before the Lord. That's what we think of repentance as being. And I understand that that is the action of repentance in the same way that faith has actions that follow it and actions that accompany it. But just as faith is not works but is accompanied by works, repentance is not works but is accompanied by works. Repentance is recognizing that you've made a mess out of things. Repentance is recognizing that the direction your life is going is not towards the Savior. And it's stopping where you're at. And it's turning around. And it's approaching unto the Lord. Can I give you a second thing? There's a plea to approach. But there's a plea to apprehend. We see that He says, Come unto Me. It's not enough that we turn away. There's a place we must go. Let me tell you what Christians, all of us, are guilty of. 
the Lord points something in our life. And listen, I, I recognize we're mostly home folk this morning, but this has to do with the sinner and this has to do with the saint alike. We all have a tendency to want to reform. When we don't need reformation, we need transformation. We don't need a new uh, leaf, we need a new life. We don't need merely to turn away, but we need to go to the Savior. Paul used the word apprehend. He said, if I may also apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. What was he saying? He said, God's trying to do something in my life. That's why He saved me. That's why I was apprehended was for a purpose. And I'm trying to grab hold of that purpose for which God saved me. Paul said, I'm not just separating from the world, I'm separating unto the Lord. Let me put it as plain as I can this morning, church. Until you're ready to come to the Lord to get help, you're not going to get it. You can get it out of a a bottle, you can get it out of a pill bottle, you can get it on a psychiatrist's couch. You can get all the help that you feel like you need, and it won't be enough. It won't give rest to your weary soul. Preacher, are you against those things? I'm I'm not against medication, I'm not against psychiatry. I live in a crazy world. Somebody say amen right there. And I've said it before, I, most people probably need to be on more medication. I understand that. I'm not saying those things can't help, but I'm saying this. If that's what you're depending on and you're not going to the Lord, you're not going to get the help you need. You've got to apprehend Him. You've got to take hold of Him. Not His, not His thoughts, Him. Not His teachings, Him. Not His church, Him. This is a Him thing this morning. You understand that? This is all about Him this morning. It's not the greatest misnomer in Christianity today is that we're following a body of doctrine, but neighbor, we're being taught a body of doctrine by a living Spirit of God, of the Son of God. That's the difference. It's not just empty principles and ideals, but it's a relationship with a Savior. And until you're willing to come to Him, you won't get the rest that you need. There's a plea that's given. But I see also, Brother Ralph, and a lot of people don't think of this, uh, but I see a prerequisite. That's demanded. Come unto me. Who? I mean, if you tell somebody to come over here, you ever do one of these? You ever call somebody you because you didn't know what their name was? You ever done that before? Hey, you, how are you? <laughs> hey, pal, buddy, chief. I'm thankful he knows my name today. I'm thankful he don't have to do me that way. I'm thankful that he knows my name and how to call it. Who is it he's talking to? Come unto me. We see, first off, it's an inclusive statement. All ye that labor. I like that. You know what that does? The Savior recognizes the plight of a sin-fallen man. Why do we labor today? And you just follow me because I'm going to chase a chain through this. Why do we labor today? In the Garden of Eden, they worked, but labor was not labor like we know of today. The Bible says that the Lord put the man in the garden and commanded him to dress it and to keep it. And work was not a bad thing. But when we think of the idea of labor, we think of uh, a laborious activity. Why is it that we labor today? We labor because of a sin-cursed world. We have weariness because we're in a sin-cursed world. And can I say that the Savior calls to each and every sinner... And says, all ye that labor, come unto me. Let me go a step further and let me say that as a result of sin's curse, Brother Ralph, that's the weariness that exists not only in the life of the lost sinner, but in the life of the redeemed saint. And you and I, friend, the reason we are weary 
in our lives today is because we live in a sin-cursed world. When the Bible says all, it means all. It doesn't matter your race or your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter your financial bracket. It doesn't matter your background. The Lord says any and all that labor. And we all labor. We all labor. There's people that labor to find rest in finances and money. There's people that labor uh, to find rest in relationships and in friendships. There's people that labor uh, to find rest in uh, lusts and in fornication and in satisfying the desires of their flesh. But you walk up and down the streets of this world and you'll find people that are trying to find an answer today. Why are they looking for an answer? Because there's a question that hasn't been answered in their heart. There's a rest they're trying to attain. There's a peace they're trying to grasp. And all around us we see men and women and boys and girls that are reaching and grasping for some sense of peace and rest and certainty in this world. They're all laboring today. We as believers many times spend our life in discouragement and weariness because of our laboring. Let me give you a second thought, though. It's an inclusive statement. But now wrap your mind around this. It's also an exclusive statement. So what do you mean, preacher? I mean, he says, come unto me, all ye that labor. But then he uses this terminology. He says, and are heavy laden. What does it mean to be heavy laden? It means to be bearing a great weight, to be oppressed by something. But let me say that until you recognize that you're bearing a great weight, you will not seek rest. It's inclusive in that any and all in this world can find the help that they need. But it's exclusive in this sense. Only those that have come to the end of their strength will seek it. When something's heavy laden, it's because his strength or her strength has been expended. I don't know about you. I, I, I spend, I own a pickup truck. It's a sacrifice to own a pickup truck. Somebody, Curtis, say amen back there. He knows what I'm talking about. You own a pickup truck and people think, moving van. I mean, that's just how it is. I spend more time in my life moving other people than I do moving myself. And that's part of it. So I spend a lot of time trying to walk up and down stairwells with washers and dryers, turn catty cornered sideways, poking holes in walls. I spend a lot of time doing that. You know, if you're helping someone move, Ralph, uh, I don't know which is worse. I don't know if it's worse to be at the bottom of the stairs or the top of the stairs, you know? If you're at the bottom of the stairs, you're really carrying everything. The person up there is just kind of guiding it and making sure it don't fall on you. But if you're the person up there, you're doing this right here, trying to hold like a 400-pound piece of appliance. And inevitably, there always comes a time, because nobody lives on a ground level anymore, Ralph. I don't know why that is, but nobody just lives in a rancher anymore. Everybody's got to live up six flights of stairs. When you're helping someone move something, and it's heavy, and you know it's heavy, but you press on. And you know what you're always thinking? You're always thinking to yourself, just a few more steps and we'll be free. Just a few more steps. I don't know about you, but I know for me, I never make it those few more steps. And you'll always hear me going, whoa, whoa, whoa. I got away. I think it cut a finger off, you know. The reality is it was always too heavy for me. I just hadn't come to the place where I recognized it. Let me tell you something. Without Christ, it's all too heavy for you. You may not come to the place where you see it yet. We all labor, 
but we all don't recognize that we're heavy laden. We all labor, but we all don't recognize that it's too great for us. Paul came to a place in his life where he recognized that it was too great for him. He writes in the book of 2 Corinthians about the time that they spent in Asia, and, and he says this, he said, we found in ourselves the sentence of death. And he says that we were pressed above strength, out of measure. You know what he's saying when he says that? He's saying we came to the place where God put more on us than we could bear. One of the most prevalent lies that you'll hear people say is that God will not put more on you than you can bear. Listen carefully this morning. He will not suffer you to be tempted above that which ye are able. But He will put more on you than you can bear. And you can mark her down, even if He doesn't, there'll be a few things we pick up along the way because of our sin that'll make it too heavy to bear. Paul, the very one that God used to write that He will not suffer us to be tempted above that which we are able, is the very one that said that we found in ourselves a sentence of death. We're pressed above strength, out of measure. What's he saying? He said, we were plumb out of strength. You know why, though? He said, we found in ourselves a sentence of death that we might put our faith in God whom raiseth the dead. It's not till you're brought to the end of yourself that you find the beginning of Him. There's no backup plans with faith. When we come to the place that there are no other options, faith begins to operate. And I fear that many times we're playing chicken with an almighty God by saying, Lord, I'm trusting you while we're keeping a peripheral eye upon other options. Paul says we ran out of other options. We were expended. We had nothing left. We had to have the Lord's help. The Lord brought him through several situations like that. And the most famous, I know, that we all read uh, is in the book of Second Corinthians when he talks about the thorn in the flesh and the messenger of Satan that was sent to buffet him. And thrice he prayed to the Lord and pleaded and begged and asked God to remove this item from his life. Can I say that many times... You know what he went on to say? He said, the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for thee. I will therefore glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon, rest upon me. Do you know that many times we're guilty of praying for God to take away the very thing in our life that gives Him the most glory? I believe that Paul got a hold of the horns of the altar. I believe Paul was right with God. I believe he was honoring God in his life at this time. I believe he got a hold of the horns of the altar. I believe he connected heaven. The only problem was the Lord's answer was no. How do we act when the Lord tells us No. It's always the right answer if the Lord gives it. And the Lord said, no, Paul, no. My grace is enough. It's sufficient. Paul had to come to a place where he was heavy laden. The sinner has to come to a place where their sin is heavy laden upon them. The Christian has to come to a place where their sorrows are heavy laden upon them. But when you reach that place, friend, understand that you're just footsteps away from the heavy shoulders of our Savior. We see a plea. We see a prerequisite. I want to give you a final thing and I'm going to hush. I want you to notice that we see a promise. I will give you rest. Can I say that this promise has two applications? It has an eternal understanding. For the sinner, if you're here today without Christ, I know we're home, folks. I'd call the name of everybody in this building. 
But I don't know your heart any more than you know my heart. And if you're here today and you've been playing church and it's starting to get a little heavy on you, can I say to you today that the Lord is ready to give you eternal rest. He's ready to save your soul today. Give you a home in heaven. Give you an inheritance that's incorruptible, that fadeth not away. Give you a name that's a new name that doesn't have all sin stains attached to it. I'm talking the Savior's ready to give you the rest that sin and the world can't give you. But can I say that there's an immediate application? The Bible talks in the book of Hebrews about God's people having a rest. The Bible says, There remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God. And we say, oh, yes, glory, hallelujah, I've got that rest. I have rest in the Savior. Do you? Or have you just not come to the place where you're heavy laden yet? Because the Bible says that the nation of Israel would not enter in to that rest because of unbelief. Let me tell you where rest comes from. Peter wrote about it when he said, casting all your care upon him. For he careth for you. The rest doesn't come from casting all your care upon him. The rest comes from for he careth for you. What do you mean, preacher? I mean this. There's a lot of people that you know, and we're all guilty of this, and I believe we ought to be persistent in our prayers. I'm not saying we ought to just pray for something once and then it's it's unbelief if we ever pray for it again. The Bible commands us that we ought to repeatedly pray to the Lord. But you know what a lot of people do? A lot of people will come down to an altar bearing a burden and they'll take it and they'll lay it before the Lord. Before they even get back to their pew, it's back on their shoulders. Why? Because of unbelief. It's not that they didn't cast their cares upon, but it's that they didn't really believe that He careth for you. The rest comes from understanding that God's will's perfect. The rest comes from understanding that the Lord loves you more than you love yourself. The rest comes from understanding that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. That's where the rest comes from this morning. You may be weary and you may be heavy laden and you may be bending low beneath a weight of care, but there's a Savior that loves you that has got it all under control. There's a Savior that still sits upon His throne. There's a Savior that is seated at the right hand of the Father and ever liveth to make intercession for you this morning. There's a place you can go. And the Lord made a promise. He didn't say, come unto me and pay a big tithe, Brother Ralph. He didn't say, come unto me and promise you'll do better. He didn't say, come unto me, but come looking right. If you're laboring today, and if you draw a breath, you are. And if you're heavy laden today, the Savior says, come unto me. Come unto me. He goes on saying, verse 29, take that yoke off you. Put it on me. Take the yoke off me. Put it on you. What does that mean? Well, it means this. Do you think the Son of God would have a care in this world? His Father owns it all. Your father owns it all. Do you think the Son of God has any need to worry? He's royalty. Your royalty. Do you think the Son of God has any reason to care? He's perfectly righteous and approved and pleasing unto God and accepted in the Beloved. You're robed in His righteousness. He took your yoke at Calvary, but He takes your yoke daily. 
when you take your cares and worries and place them upon the everlasting arms of Almighty God. And He says, now take my yoke, one of rest and peace and strength and encouragement. I can't help you get the help you need this morning. You've got to be the one that comes to the Savior. I can't make you come. You've got to be the one that makes that decision. But the Savior promised you that if you will come unto Him, and if you will in faith trust Him, He will give you 